I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Mango Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. It's almost impossible to talk about net zero without discussing the role of carbon offsets. But carbon offsets have a major credibility problem, and for good reason, too. Offsets have historically been vulnerable to abuse, even fraud. There's no international standard for carbon offset accounting. Regulators have yet to play an oversight role. The market is relatively small and illiquid, and pricing is opaque. The majority of net zero targets out there don't specify what and how carbon offsets are being used in their net zero plans, not to mention there's a perception that offsets represent a license to keep on polluting. But the reality is that carbon offsets will be one of many tools in the climate transition, especially for residual emissions from hard-to-abate sectors. The question is how to govern their use and provide transparency and credibility which is where the University of Oxford's The Oxford Principles for Net Zero Aligned Carbon Offsetting comes in. Its four principles include, first, prioritize reducing your own emissions before resorting to offsets. Second, shift offsetting towards carbon removal and away from carbon avoidance. Third, transition to long-lived storage, which permanently removes carbon from the atmosphere. And fourth, support the development of carbon markets for net-zero-aligned offsets. It's why it's great to have Professor Thomas Hale. Tom is co-author of the Oxford Principles for Net-Zero-Aligned Carbon Offsetting, and he co-leads the Net Zero Tracker. We talk about what's at stake in net-zero commitments, how to think about potential policy solutions, and why it's vital that we work towards a more robust regulatory system to oversee carbon offsets markets. Tom is professor at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. His research explores how we can manage transnational problems effectively and fairly, and to explain how political institutions evolve to face the challenges raised by globalization and interdependence, with a particular emphasis on environmental, economic, and health issues. He also leads the Oxford COVID-19 Government Response Tracker. His books include Beyond Gridlock, Beyond Interests and Law, The Politics of Transnational Commercial Disputes, Transnational Climate Change Governance, and Gridlock, Why Global Cooperation is Failing When We Need It Most. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Thomas Hale. It's great to have you here today, and thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jason. Really excited about this, Tom. So there is definitely a lot to chew on here. But I'd like to start with some scene setting first. Your recent article in the Financial Times called The Carbon Offset Market is Falling Short, Here's How to Fix It, really kind of came to my attention and kind of animated this whole discussion for me. And it strikes me as a good way to enter into the subject of carbon offsets. What's the problem you're describing? And more importantly, what's at stake? So what's at stake when we talk about carbon offsetting or indeed any aspect of what net zero means and how we get there is really the chances of limiting climate change to a safe level. So it's, it's big. Now the world is now aligned to net zero as an ultimate goal. 
The Net Zero Tracker that you mentioned records net zero commitments from different kinds of entities. If you look just at countries, for example, 90% of global GDP has some kind of net zero target attached to it. One third of the biggest publicly listed companies in the world also have net zero targets. So the world's really gotten mobilized. It's sort of a big victory in the process of aligning the economy to climate goals. But now we're in the messy business of implementation, which is a lot harder. And it doesn't really matter how much GDP we get aligned to net zero, that alignment doesn't really mean very much. So this robustness of the net zero targets is the key question going forward, and offsetting is probably the piece of that that stirs up the most controversy. It absolutely is. I want to take a step back for one second. It's worth defining some terminology before we jump in. So first, what's the fundamental difference between carbon or climate neutral and net zero? I've always interpreted carbon neutrality to mean achieving carbon reductions through, frankly, the indiscriminate use of offsets, while net zero means actually reducing carbon emissions with the use of offsets as a last resort for hard-to-abate sectors. Is that right? And then second, how do we distinguish between, you've called it this, between rigorous offsets and junk offset credits? That's exactly right. That We have a lot of terms, net zero, carbon neutral, climate negative, carbon positive, all these different things that don't always mean the same thing when people say them. So it's important to get precise about what this language might mean. Um, one effort to do that comes from the UN's Race to Zero campaign, which has published a lexicon building off the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's lexicon of what these terms might mean. And it's an attempt to kind of reduce the friction that arises from people using different words in the same, or same words in different ways. Um, and in that sense, uh, consistent with the lexicon, net zero means exactly what you say. It means reducing emissions, sharply reducing them, the level of residual emissions, and then permanently neutralizing those ongoing residual emissions. And that's different from the way carbon neutral is used, which just means there's no more going in than is coming out, um, but doesn't necessarily imply there's been adequate reductions yet. Um, And then, of course, there's many other kind of twists and flavors on these terms, but that's the fundamental difference. So if you want to think about net zero and carbon neutral together, one way to think about it is to see carbon neutral as a really useful goal to achieve on the path to net zero. As you're reducing emissions, you can go beyond your own value chain and get those make a contribution to kind of global net zero by going above and beyond what your science-based pathway down to net zero might look like. But the ultimate goal you want to achieve, achieve is, of course, net zero. We've reduced emissions to such a level that any residual emissions can be permanently neutralized. I've got a technical question in in sort of this conversation. Practically speaking, what do you see as the appropriate mix of offsets relative to emissions reductions in that path to net zero? The carbon neutral protocol and the SPTI's corporate net zero standard both address offsets, but unfortunately they lack in anything more prescriptive. I often hear a working, I call it a finger-in-the-air assumption that residual carbon offsets in hard-to-abate sectors should represent roughly 10 to 20% of total emissions. But again, I'd frankly struggle to point to or cite any specific source around that. What are your thoughts there? I think, as you say, it's really hard to be um, entirely prescriptive at a general level on what the right balance should be. But probably the 80 to 90% level is a good rule of thumb for what we should do. And the reason why is if you look at any kind of global climate scenario for achieving 1.5 or 2 degrees, 
the good ones tend to have something close to that at a global scale. So if the world needs to reduce emissions by 80 or 90 percent in the next few decades, then that probably means that your organization, your company, your country, your city, your region is going to need to do something similar. But of course, it's going to vary in any given scenario, and there's lots of uncertainty around these scenarios. So it's something that we're going to have to kind of iterate on on the on the path down to net zero. But it's really surprising how when you put out a number like 90% or 80%, how many people see themselves in the 10% or the 20%. Mm-hmm. This is why I think we probably talk about offsetting you know, probably more than is merited in some ways, both as sort of solution and as uh, a bugbear of some, some entities. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be one piece of a big toolkit we're going to need, but probably not the biggest piece. And so that's why organizations like, say, Science-Based Targets Initiative or the Men's Race to Zero campaign really make clear that Emissions reductions in the near term are the most important thing to do, and offsetting can be a complement to that on the way down to net zero, and then can play some role perhaps once we've achieved that residual emission level in permanently neutralizing those emissions that remain. Yeah, it's it's a really good point. I actually want to dig a little bit deeper into that. In your work with the Net Zero Tracker, you pointed out that the majority, like you said earlier, of Net Zero targets don't specify what and how offsets are used in their Net Zero plans. What do you make of that? Is it is it bad behavior? I mean, basically companies gaming it, or is it indicative of a much larger structural problem about, frankly, how to plan and sequence net zero plans over the next 30 years? I think it's a good part uh, driven by just companies not being entirely clear on how they're going to achieve these targets they've set. And that's that's fair. It's, it's, you know, no one's going to know exactly what steps will be required for the next 30 years of any trajectory. But we need to net rapidly move beyond that and get to a place where people are putting out clarity on what their short-term plans will be, and also sharing what information, sharing information about what offsets they're using or not using on the way toward net zero. So you have of the companies that we find with net zero targets, half of them fail to specify if offsets will or won't be used. And even of that half that do say something, most don't provide any kind of conditions or what what they might be doing with their offsets or not. So that's not really enough information to give investors or customers or governments or other stakeholders clarity on what companies are actually doing, what their pathway actually looks like. And so it's a, it's a big problem to solve. And it's pretty you know straightforward to, I think, to provide some transparency on that. So if you're a company using offsets, providing a bit more clarity on what you're buying, what role it's playing in your overall plan is going to help a lot. Are there some examples that you'd give of sovereigns, states, cities, corporates that are doing it in an in a way that, that you see as credible? Yeah, so I think the first step, of course, is to recognize the, this mitigation hierarchy idea, i.e. that you should do emissions reductions before thinking too much about uh, using offsets to um, to help out along the way, and certainly not using offsets to delay or uh, substitute for emissions reductions. So the good news is that a number of companies are doing that, and indeed the Science-Based Targets Initiative, as you mentioned, indeed the UN New Race to Zero campaign, these are all requiring that as a, as a minimum criterion for for effectiveness. So that's, that's an important thing to do in the first step. But then beyond that, um, there are some examples of companies that are doing some interesting things uh, around being very clear what they're doing for offsets. So one example is Netflix, which has um, put forward a very uh, ambitious plan to uh, use some really big ticket nature-based solutions as part of its offset initiative. Um, other companies have uh, join some big kind of consortium efforts. Uh, one, like, I think is a good model is the Global Leaf Coalition, which is a partnership between companies, 
for example, Unilever countries, for example, UK or Germany, um, and also countries like Brazil, which are, are regions in Brazil and the Pantanal region, for example, that are doing um, some really interesting system-wide um, in- interventions to um, reduce land-based emissions. So those are, I think, a nice step beyond some of the um, less credible options because they're taking this really systems-level approach. They're not saying this isolated forest by itself is going to be there forever and is going to provide this kind of carbon sequestration, rather doing some um, much more kind of widespread assessment of a whole region of the world um, and making different interventions across that region to really change its trajectory um, in, a, in a fairly fundamental way. So that's um, a few best practices that I think we need to think more about. No, it's it's just a, it's such a fascinating kind of uh, topic. I think from an investor perspective and, and from my own experience, I think engaging with companies, particularly around their net zero plans, um, we've done a number of engagements in Japan, for instance, with with carbon intensive companies. Th- th- there is clearly a, a recognition by them that they are going to use offsets. I don't know if it's bad behavior. I would say that it's also sort of contingent on the realities of other technologies, you know, that, that are not yet commercialized. To what degree do they transpire, whether it's the uh, a new market for ammonia-based feedstocks or, or blue hydrogen, green hydrogen? It, the, the use of offsets tends to kind of revolve around the development of, of some of these other areas. It certainly does. And that's why I think um, some, of, some of these bigger um, alignment to net zero um, Practices, but also regulations are going to be an important part of getting the offsets question right, which is one piece of this larger equation. So, for example, a number of uh, entities are now setting conditions around what kinds of transition plans they expect companies to publish for their net zero alignment. And the UK is you know, moving to make this part of its regulatory infrastructure. Um, and one piece of that will be providing information about what actions are being taken for interim and longer term targets and what kinds of emissions reductions are tied to those actions. And then also being very clear about where there's uncertainty. And um, and within that mix, you know, the offsetting can help provide, as I said, a kind of beyond value chain contribution to global mitigation on the way down to net zero. And of course, a potential tool for neutralizing emissions once net zero has been achieved. But recognizing the uncertainty is a big part of it, right? And so having offsetting as a kind of a, an option to think about is a helpful tool for managing some of that uncertainty. Um, but it can, of course, substitute for or delay the really important bringing down emissions in the short term. The Oxford Offsetting Principles paper, which you led, points to a net zero line trajectory example where long-lived carbon storage with lower risk of reversal represents the entirety of the offsets market by 2050. And, you know, incidentally to the audience, if if, if you haven't seen it, it's a fantastic sort of set of four principles that, that I would highly recommend. Tom, what's the risk that we're back-end loading carbon removal through largely technocratic, unproven, and potentially economically unfeasible solutions. You know, I'm not a pessimist, but, you know, clearly there's there's a lot that has to work to get to direct air capture and bioenergy capture and storage economically. Past guests in this show have pushed for a greater role in low-cost nature-based solutions, despite the obvious reversibility risk that, that you highlight in the paper. So I think this is a question of that we need everything, um, but obviously the sequencing might be uh, might give us at different times and when we want to prioritize certain things. So in the short run, we absolutely need to stop cutting down trees. We need to start preserving the nature that exists 
Because if we don't do that, we're probably going to be basically impossible to meet our global climate goals. Um, you know, deforestation is one of the biggest drivers of emissions today. And if we don't stop that, then that's going to prevent anyone from getting to global net zero. So making this goal of reducing emissions, uh, including through nature-based solutions in the short term, is absolutely essential. But at the same time, we can't then continue to save more and more nature once we've reached the level of residual emissions, because there's only so many uh, you know, tons of carbon that can be can be saved that way. And so if we just think that's going to somehow allow us to forego the deep decarbonization we need to simultaneously drive, that's a mistake. But similarly, a third piece is that if we also don't develop the carbon capture solutions, the car- direct air capture, the technologies that are really experimental at this stage, but probably going to be necessary at vast scale once we've reached that residual emissions level. We need to be developing those at the same time. So it's kind of like three things that need to happen all at the same time. Reducing current emissions is the biggest one. Investing in nature to to have a a global contribution to net zero um, on the path down to those residual emissions and building up the R&D and the commercialization of these new technologies that will be useful all of that at least happened simultaneously, even though people might see them as trade-offs to really compliments. I mean, what, what's your view of, of the potential for nature-based solutions? Uh, I, look, I get the point that you you say that we need everything. You know, I find that, that that is sort of the lowest cost per ton, you know, on the cost curve. At the same time, and you would know this, you know, incredibly well, but I mean, they're just tremendous collective action problems, kind of policy issues in terms of land reallocation for, for those purposes. Absolutely. So um, if companies would like to make contributions to the conservation of nature, to uh, forests, to other bio, bio systems, uh, to putting carbon to soils, that's all excellent stuff. But we know that this is not the kind of problem that sort of you know, money through voluntary carbon markets alone is going to solve. And nature-based solutions require a big investment, of course, but they also require governance reforms. They require you know, building alternative livelihoods for people in rural Indonesia or in, or in the Amazon or in other parts of the world. And that requires a whole suite of solutions. So you know, we want to be clear that the positive investments of private sector offsetting into conservation can be a useful tool, but it's just one, and I would say, fairly small piece of the what's actually required to protect nature, which is the, the ultimate goal we're, we're trying to get to. So, you know, I don't want to say it's not important, it's, it's critical, but at the same time, it's not sufficient. What are the lessons learned from uh, being part of Net Zero Tracker, and how how is your understanding evolved? It's interesting that the Science-Based Targets Initiative currently does not accept targets from the oil and gas or fossil fuel sectors. I guess in this respect, what does commitment theory in a political economy light reveal about net zero pledges? Should we should we take sovereigns, corporates, and investors at their word, or or should we discount those pledges? I think it's been really interesting to watch the the kind of incredibly fast diffusion of net zero as an organizing principle for climate mitigation, where it really went from a scientific idea in the early twenty tens, was picked up in the IPCC's fourth assessment report was put into the 2015 Paris Agreement, but in kind of a slightly um, softer language around balancing sources and sinks, and then really became a kind of um, uh, sort of global phenomenon after the 2018 IPCC report on global warming of 1.5 degrees. And so in that short time frame, it really went from kind of scientific idea, fringe demand of activists to suddenly mainstream principle for corporate climate action. Um, and so it's not surprising that it has this very complicated 
transition is is now kind of gone from a um, good idea of when things should happen to this more messy implementation phase. Um, but I think it's continuing to evolve very quickly from kind of a sort of voluntary practice of leaders to really a kind of ground rule for the world economy overall. And we see this transition from voluntary action to orchestrated efforts like the UN's Race to Zero campaign or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures to international standards and to the ISO or the um, International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB, and now into regulation. Um, and so that's, I think, going to continue. Um, and as we look to this kind of mainstreaming of net zero into the broader kind of regulatory landscape around corporate uh, climate action, um, I think it's really important that we uh, you know, focus on the scientific integrity of, of that regulation because you know, it's really good to see it moving from a kind of leadership practice to a mainstream idea, but we really have to get it right. So this is, I think, where the kind of action is on um, the broader net zero transition at the moment. I was going to say, you know, given the number of different stakeholder groups and initiatives introducing governance frameworks around net zero, how do you think we reconcile sometimes even conflicting perspective, for instance, around the appropriate use of offsets? It feels too easy to point to, like you said, a science-based approach, but is that the simple answer? Well, I think we're seeing actually a lot of convergence in some areas. So the general contours of what makes a robust net zero pathway or not are, I think, much more agreed upon than they were in the past. So, you know, in, at least in theory, one would say that involves immediate emissions reductions, non over reliance and offsetting. It involves, of course, um, you know, clear plans, clear transparency. Um, but then there's, of course, a number of open questions. The one we're talking about today, offsetting, is one of the big ones. But there's all these around, say, what the fair share differences would be between, say, a company based in here in the UK, where I'm sitting, or, say, in India. You know, should they have the same um, allocations under a global net zero transition, or should they be a little bit different? And so those kinds of questions will be, I think, ongoing ones. Many of them are not kind of scientific questions, but rather much more political, moral, social questions to, to work through. Um, and so I think there's a lot more to figure out, but we're we're again, moving really quickly from kind of where we were even a few years ago. Um, and I don't think we have any choice but to keep moving really faster still. I want to move it to more of a markets track right now. You know, The European Commission is currently debating the merits of investors' access to the EU emissions trading scheme. What do you see as the role of outside investors in regulatory markets like the ETS? Should investors have access there's an argument to say that the ETS is already and inherently inefficient. I mean, precisely because the EU is in, in the most explicit way managing for a higher price. There's effectively no invisible hand in this market. I think that's right. And I, I do think that compliance based carbon markets and trade and emissions trading schemes, um, will, you know, will, um, follow the demands of political exigencies. And so bringing in private investors, I'm not sure is really a powerful way to um, to increase efficiency for the reasons you say, um, but you know I think the the most important thing governments can do is provide that kind of long term policy stability that will then push investment in the right way, regardless of whether it's going directly into this e through the ETS mechanism or through the normal normal channels of the economy. Um, so yeah, an ETS price with say an escalator that's going up in a very predictable way up to a certain goal. I think would be one way to, even if you're not bringing investors into the market, to nonetheless mobilize investment in the right direction um, across the economy. So 
Um, I'm not sure we have any good examples of where bringing private investors into compliance markets has yielded a big step change. Um, but you know, experimentation is the name of this game, so maybe it, maybe it's worth a try. Car- carbon markets are still incredibly fragmented, which prevents multinational cooperation. What does a future look like in which multinational regulatory markets are possible? How can we drive forms of cooperation if we don't have the regulatory capacity to link markets right now? So I'm a little bit hesitant to advocate for linking carbon markets because I think the conditions for it to succeed are quite narrow. Um, so, you know, the price of a carbon market, of course, is set through, through a political process, and that means that if you want to link carbon markets together, effectively governments are tying their hands to the price that the least ambitious government is willing to set. So if I'm looking at it from a carbon perspective, you know, that could be a good thing if you had, say, a very ambitious market that was helping a slower market get to a, a higher price more quickly. Um, but I'm not sure I can see many scenarios where that's likely to occur. Rather, I sort of see the value of linkage being pushed mainly by um, interest groups that are interested rather in finding you know, cheaper credits through economies that have more low-hanging fruit. Um, so I'm not sure that means we're going to see linkage as really a tool to getting to higher prices and therefore driving um, driving more decarbonization. Um, this is a case where I think where the economic theory and the political reality are maybe standing a little bit at odds with each other. But, but wouldn't you say coming out of COP26 with, I wouldn't say Article 6 was completely sort of resolved, but I mean, there was, it felt like there was a substantial step forward in terms of at least starting to link or solve these issues at a supranational level. I think Article 6 does create a pathway for countries and other actors to make contributions to other entities' um, decarbonization goals. And that can, of course, be a very good thing um, if it's mobilizing new finance to help entities that don't have access to that finance take steps they wouldn't otherwise be able to take. Um, but one of the concerns, of course, is that that process doesn't necessarily um, you know, ensure that those contributions are going to be as additional as we'd like them to be. So I think there's still a little bit of the implementation side to figure out. Again, this is a case where we've had this theory of uh, maximizing the market for maximum efficiency for a long time. And actually, I think the kind of rate limiting step is not so much finding those opportunities, but rather mobilizing the interest in taking these actions in the first place. So um, I do worry that we're putting the economic theory a bit of the political horse, um, the economic theory cart ahead of the political political reality horse in this way. I completely agree. And, and certainly governance horse. Uh, absolutely. Uh, what are your thoughts around efforts to develop a unified market for carbon offsets via uh, let's say Mark Carney's task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets. He's estimated that market could be as large as a hundred billion by 2030 versus what 300 million in 2018. What's the role of regulators here in, in your mind? Regulators. And in fact, we've had Chairman Rostin Benham, uh, chair of the uh, uh, U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission, on this podcast as well, and mm-hmm. and he certainly expressed a heavy uh, interest in bringing transparency and liquidity to uh, the offsets market. But I think it'd be wonderful if we were able to build a strong governance system that could deliver really good integrity, high integrity. Uh, carbon credits in a way that would allow the market to scale to a large degree. But you know, I think we have to recognize that the starting point is not that. We're starting from a world where uh, the current voluntary carbon markets uh, space is quite, well, I think a wild west would be a fair description. There's all sorts of things. It's not regulated. There's lots of um, 
you know, bad things floating amongst the good. So, uh, you know, one way to get around that, of course, is to create higher standards. And so I think we've seen two very useful initiatives in that space. One, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. You mentioned also the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, UCMI. Um, and they're kind of complementary. The first is helping to think about what the high integrity supply of carbon credits would be. So are they really doing what they say they'll do in terms of additionality and really delivering reductions? And the other is focusing more on the demand side. What are if you're using carbon credits, are you using them in a way that's consistent with the global decarbonization imperative, i.e. not using them as a substitute for or delay decarbonization? So those entities are still you know, further promulgating and getting consultations and getting those standards agreed, but the broad contours are already coming to place. And so I think it's very right for regulators like the CTFC or others to pick up and say, yes, we want to kind of embrace that. Um, but again, I think this is the way forward, getting to regulation. If it's not going to be high quality regulation that could be a real step backwards because it would kind of lock in a, a low level low integrity uh, uh, market but if it's a high integrity one that could be a real big game changer so yeah I think it's it's a very exciting field to, to push forward on I want to move to some of the ingredients uh, of of a successful market namely quality and quantity that you've you've talked about before in the, in the paper many people point to microsoft and its sequencing from carbon avoidance to carbon removal offsets to get to carbon negative in fact by 2030 as sort of an exemplar company at the same time microsoft seems to highlight the problems around availability and liquidity. Yeah, for instance, Microsoft bought 1.3 million tons of high quality in, in their definition of carbon removal offsets in its first year, which was essentially almost all of the 1.5 million ton global capacity. It, you know, again, it speaks to your point about the lack of quality and quantity in, in offsets markets. How do we develop those two ingredients? Yeah, I think this is a great way that companies like Microsoft can help to create something that doesn't yet exist at the scale we need. Um, Stripe is another company, I think, that's made some really good investments here. And the common thread is that these tend to be you know, tech companies or the companies that don't have a big emissions footprint um, of the hard-to-abate kind themselves um, and have a lot of, of you know, cash and are very innovative and want to, to make a positive difference. So if you're a Microsoft or if you're a Stripe or, as I mentioned before, Netflix, you can make these kinds of moves. Much harder if you're, say, an airline or a steel company or a chemical company or one where carbon is a bit more fully fundamentally woven into your um, into your business model. But this is really why we need those kinds of innovative companies to push push forward on these kinds of uh, you know undeveloped but really important technologies, get them to a point where they're going to be more and more part of the solution. As we were saying before, though, that's not a magic bullet for for the decarbonization challenge, um, but rather this kind of third pillar of developing the, the future future technologies that will um, you know, need to be there for residual emissions by the time that zero is achieved. I want to change lanes again and move on to the state of global environmental governance, particularly going into COP27 in what uh, you know a few short months. It feels like. To what degree do you see us backsliding, either for circumstantial reasons, you know, COVID, the economic, i.e., the the inflation, and sort of the debate around the merits of net zero and an inflationary environment. Um, or, or more problematically, around ideological differences. In the U.S., the Supreme Court reset the EPA's regulatory powers, and uh, it, sadly, Biden hasn't been able to accomplish important climate goals, you know, from Build Back Better to the recent climate change bill stalled by, by frankly, Joe Manchin. Um, what's your take on this? 
So I think we have to be very clear-eyed about this. There's, we're clearly off course to meet our globally agreed goals, and we need to speed up a lot faster if we're going to get anywhere close to, to hitting them. And there's indeed some very strong headwinds at the moment. Um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, has led to a global energy shock that's having um, very strong effects. The politics in the U.S. are really um, not working out as we would hope from a client perspective with the Build Back Better bill being stalled. Uh, by gridlock in the Senate, by the Supreme Court also cutting down the government's regulatory powers, although perhaps not quite as much as some people might have feared. And we see this, of course, in places like, say, China, where the process of taking coal offline has really slowed down because of the global energy shock. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to also be very clear-eyed about those things that are, are working out quite well. So this price shock in, in gas prices has really accelerated the decarbonization process in, in Europe and indeed in other non-fossil fuel producing countries that are, are consumers of these products. Um, China, even though it's not moving as fast to move out away from coal as it, as it hopefully would be, has actually really acceler- accelerated its renewable energy deployment. So last year, China built more renewable energy than exists in the entire United States. Uh, this is a really important part of the longer term trajectory here. And we see, of course, lots of really positive signs, say, in the transportation sector, where you know, in the U.S., uh, we've now crossed this kind of critical threshold of 5% of new car sales being being uh, batteries. And that's going to, you know, what people say is a real kind of indicator of a tipping point toward widespread adoption much faster than, than most models would have said a few years ago. So we kind of need to hold these two ideas in our head at the same time. There's some major headwinds, but also some some important wins. Um, and, you know, the the kind of medium-term trajectory, I think, has been clouded by those headwinds, but to my mind, it doesn't really change the longer-term outcome. And so for businesses in particular, who are trying to have a little bit of stability and a little bit of clarity on what the direction of travel is, I think the real, the real implication, for me at least, is to um, double down on this transition to make sure that we're moving away from things that give us price shocks and a lot of volatility, things that are a bit more predictable and secure. And in the long term, I think that's going to make a lot of sense for everyone. <laughs> that's great. That was a balance to positive response. <laughs> I, I wasn't quite sure how you would answer that, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, look, last question. I've really enjoyed this discussion. What can we look forward to in your own research around this area? So my major interest at the moment is how this transition goes from the sort of recognition of net zero as the right way of travel, this big uptake of the idea, 90% of global GDP now aligned to this idea, to the actual implementation and integration of this idea into the fundamental rules of the world economy. So we're seeing this happen already very fast with disclosure, where it went from kind of a voluntary practice to this orchestrated campaign by the G20 with the task force on climate-related financial disclosures, TCFT, to now a regulatory requirement in a number of jurisdictions around the world. That's now beginning to happen also with transition plans. It's going to happen, I think, a lot more quickly with trade rules, as we see from the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism and related policies in other large economies. It's going to happen and already is happening with procurement. So across all these different aspects of economic rulemaking, net zero is going to find its way in there. And so the companies that I think are going to be furthest ahead in this transition are those that have already built that into how they're thinking about developing their business plans going forward. Um, and I expect these kind of debates around offsetting, as we talked about here, but also things on like scope and fair share, other kinds of thorny topics in the broader what does net zero really mean to space are going to be really interesting. But my research is really 
you know, I'm fascinated by this question of how we move from kind of a voluntary groundswell of net zero activity to net zero as a ground rule for the economy overall. That sounds fascinating. Uh, look, it's been great to discuss what's at stake in net zero commitments, how to think about potential policy solutions, and why it's vital we work towards a more robust regulatory system to oversee carbon offsets. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Mann Group, here today with Professor Thomas Hale, Associate Professor at Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, Tom. This is a, a fantastic, uh, illuminating discussion. Thanks, Jason. Great to discuss and look forward to next time. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast.